In Awakening the Ashes, I've broken the book down into three parts, and the first part is called Colonialism, the second part is Independence, and the third part is Sovereignty. And within each of those three parts, each chapter just has a word as its title. And so under colonialism, we start with indigenous, um, go on to tackle slavery and prejudice. And the reason I've broken the book down in this way is to um, think about what Haitian revolutionary thought, how it helped us to kind of understand the development of these phenomena, but also of the very terminology used to explain and describe them. Um, And so the second part is uh, under independence, we have revolution, abolition, and freedom. And then in the third part, that is uh, anti-colonialism, anti-slavery, and anti-racism, because even though the revolution has so much to tell us about democracy and the formulation of democracy and the idea of formulating a republic, actually its most long-lasting legacy is in this the state that it builds after getting through the indigenous period, slavery, prejudice, revolution, abolition, on, on to freedom. That's where we can really see anti-colonialism, anti-slavery, and anti-racism as philosophies of both statehood, nationality, culture, and activism develop. Um, And I should also mention that the introduction is called History. So I sort of um, start at the end of the story and then uh, work my way back to the beginning, um, beginning in chapter one. Let's talk about dedications. I went back. And I looked at the Vate book. You wrote this, Merci les enfants. And then I went to the Tropics of Haiti book, and you wrote, For my two Sammies and Sébastien. And now for this book, Awakening the Ashes, it's For Sammy and Sébastien, Pouzanzet New York. So we got French in the first book. English, and now Creole. Why Creole this time around? I feel like this book is is your most Haitian book. Uh, Like, with this one. Uh, Am I off base on that? So this is a very interesting question and one I have never gotten before. Um, I definitely think... This is the most Haitian book in the sense that I got to write exactly the book that I wanted. Um, In fact, for my dissertation, when I was a graduate student um, at the University of Notre Dame in the early 2000s, I wanted to write my dissertation on Haitian intellectual history. But at that time, um, there was really a sense that you know, night, uh, that one couldn't just write a dissertation on 19th century Haitian literature, um, let alone something kind of more broadly construed as 19th century Haitian thought, um, that it needed to be something more comparative, that there needed to also be some English language works in there. And, you know, Michel Holtrio has talked about this um, idea of 
writing about someplace else uh, before you turn to the place where you know you're connected to through through your identity um, and why he did not write about Haiti at first and, and later came back and it helps to put things in perspective so even though I had to do a more comparative project which ended up being um, related to but not exactly the same at all as the this book that became tropics of Haiti uh, for my dissertation it was fruitful because it helped me to not fall into the idea of um, seeing Haiti in isolation or seeing Haitian thought in isolation, or um, I wouldn't have been able to understand what points in Haitian intellectual history and particularly Haitian revolutionary intellectual history were forms of radical ingenuity, which I talk a lot about in the book, um, and which were sort of adaptations and reformulations reformulations and creolizations of different forms of enlightenment thought and and criticisms of enlightenment thought because of course in order to see the critiques of that I have to be familiar with that so um, so yes it's my most Haitian book uh, in a way um, but it is also where I get to explain the radical and enormous and profound impact that Haitian thought and the Haitian Revolution had um, not just in the Western world, but on ideas more broadly of universal human rights. I asked Professor Dow about the significance of the title of her book, Awakening the Ashes, its origin, how how we should think about it. So Vate is pretty adamant um, throughout his writings that he has kind of walked through. um, So in chapter one, he also discusses uh, the chapter one that's called Indigenous, that he's kind of walked through Haiti, so to speak, different places on the island. And he's been in caves and he's seen, seen the bones and he's looked at them and he's pulled them up. And they are telling the story of Haiti's ancestors, the Aetians, the first Haitians, as he calls them. Um, And what I noticed is that um, when Jus Chanlat and Errol Dumel in particular <clears throat> begin to speak about interrogating or asking the ashes or asking the ancestors in both of their accounts, they give the response. They say, I, I went and I asked you know, them, the Aborigines, uh, the term that, that Dumel uses, um, who are the rightful inheritors of the Haitian earth? And this is what they said. Um, and so you could think of that as metaphorical, but you could also think about it as here are people who feel that they are very connected to the Haitian past, um, that the spirit world, it has much to tell them. Dumel, as he's going through his Voyage dans le Nord d'Haïti, is really talking about the earth and the land. And I think that Anyone who um, engages in contemplative practice and has sort of, you know, gone deep into forests and watched trees dance and feel like you can suddenly understand and, and think about the language of trees. And there are actually scholars who've written about this, or you sit by the ocean and you hear the sounds and you recognize that there's an entire world under there. And how do we understand and access this world? And so I think it's important to take very seriously the idea um, that for these early Haitian thinkers who lived through 
forms of tragedy, witnessing forms of violence um, and um, depredation that I think it is hard for people in the United States in particular um, to imagine at this particular moment, um, that to take very seriously the idea of how they comforted themselves, how they spoke to themselves, and then translated that way of being and understanding the world um, and making sense of it to other people so that they would have that as well. There's a passage um, from Voyage dans le Nord d'Haïti that I discussed where Dumel basically, who was a child when all this is going on. So on the one hand, you might say, oh, he's so young, he doesn't remember. But on the other hand, you might remember even more profoundly because you were a child, right? And you have less mechanisms of coping. And so he says something like, you know, it comforts me to think that the that these, you know, holocausts offered up to tyranny, that that's what fertilized the heart of liberty, that that's what we use to propel and drive forward the revolution were all the tragedies um, and horrible violence that we suffered. And, and Vate says sort of similar things at various moments in Le Système Colonial Dévoilé that, you know, the only way that you can put a positive spin on any of this is that what they were doing, the white French colonists, was so horrible that, the only, that it only fueled the revolution. It only accelerated its um, coming into existence. So it's not the French Revolution. It's not French Enlightenment or the European Enlightenment more broadly. It's that if you treat people in this horrible manner of slavery with torture and all the depredations that come with that, that it is only a matter of time before they will seek their just right of reprisal in Bate's terminology. Here's uh, what you wrote. In 1816, Vate expressed the principles of restitution, reparation, and compensation that formed the backbone of modern claims for restorative justice after mass atrocities. Wh where do you stand on, on restorative, restorative justice for Haiti? I think restorative justice for Haiti is absolutely imperative. I not sure that there are more clear-cut cases on the question of, one, uh, the reparations for slavery, which I do think um, need to be decoupled from reparations for the indemnity. And in that latter case, has there ever been a more clear-cut case where um, the New York Times investigation, but Aristide's earlier than that um, investigation into the matter, very, very clearly laid out a dollar amount and the logic for it with, as we say in modern parlance, the receipts, right? Um, it's that this is this is not hypothetical. This is that's not a question of a world that could have been. It's about actual money that was paid, interest, fees, and you know, adjusting for inflation. There is also the question, of course, of reparations for slavery, which I wholly support. I don't think that you can say that Haitians are the only victims of mass atrocity who don't deserve reparations. And uh, of course, you know, I'm exaggerating to a certain extent that the Haitian case is not the only case where this has happened. But for example, when I see the the um, Sandy Hook parents, what a horrible tragedy, this uh, Connecticut school shooting that resulted in the death of all these school children and, and some of their teachers and other school personnel. Terrible, terrible tragedy. But when I see the judgment 
against Alex Jones, who was not responsible for the killings, but had peddled this conspiracy theories that um, the Sandy Hook massacres didn't really happen. And it in encouraged um, in so doing, you know, harassment against these poor grieving parents, the judgment against him was something like $999 million, like almost a billion dollars for that, that we, it just suggests to me that our world, we very much understand that if you harm other people, you may have to pay them um, for their suffering. And so there is the payment for you know, sort of lost opportunities through slavery, but there's also the traumas that have been caused and have been handed down uh, through generational trauma and from generation to generation, along with all these stories. Um, and we can see very plainly the economic effects on Haiti, because of course, in the latter part of the book of Awakening the Ashes, um, but particularly um, in the, the in chapter eight, um, where I talk about the kingdom of Haiti at length, you can see that um, Haitians were interested in building wealth. And like other 19th century nations, they didn't always do that in ways that are commensurate with sort of modern understandings of like workplace regulations. And so, so that's not an excuse for Christophe, et cetera. It's just simply to say Haiti was on this trajectory and that trajectory was stopped by Boyer's indemnity and Haitian uh, intellectuals very clearly understood that to be the case. And so in chapter nine, I bring up Louis-Joseph Janvier and Antonio Fiona because I want it to be through their words that they explain. I also talk about uh, the French abolitionist Victor Chalcher, who <laughs> problematically writes on Haiti in, in some senses, his critiques of Pétion and Christophe, which are sometimes contradictory. But one thing that he really acknowledges is the destruction um, caused by the indemnity and how it stopped this path of kind of forward progress and kept Haiti um, in a kind of stagnant place and then caused a kind of retrograde to a certain extent um, with the Code Rural and this kind of reclassification of all Haitians as workers with little um, protections, many of the protections that were starting to be put in place uh, in the Christophe era, actually, as he's kind of getting to the end of his reign and realizing some people are very, very unhappy with him in the kingdom that um, and trying to redistribute wealth a little bit more and a little bit more fairly, that all of that just stops and the the focus becomes, oh, we need to pay back this indemnity. So, so that's just to say, um, on the question of restorative justice, you know, when looking into and learning more about sort of modern restorative justice, there are all kinds of other things that go into that. It's not just money. There is restoring justice to people and communities, but the the uh, perpetrator has to restore justice to themselves. And one of the ways that they do that is by making things right in the communities that they've harmed and putting measures, whether those be laws or other regulations in place to prevent the similar harms from ever occurring again. I want you all to put a pin on her answer there regarding uh, restorative justice for Haiti, because in part three, she goes much deeper into the discussion of, of reparations for Haiti and its, and its effect. This particular segment of what you're about to hear, where I read a passage and then you hear Dr. Doubt's answers, uh, really resonated with me because it undergirds the you know the, one of the main reasons why I've been doing this podcast for the last two years. Uh, I've said many times in different spaces that uh, we might have won 
Haiti might have won the military war against uh, France, but we've, we've been losing the media one for the last 200 plus years. It's encouraging to hear that our ancestors were fully aware of that post-independence and they did everything they could to uh, to keep the receipts, to let the world know what was going on down there in Saint-Domingue. As two of Haiti's first historians, Boiron Tonnerre and Vaté helped create a framework a framework of sovereign defiance against the colonial drive for oblivion. They derived their method directly from Haitian revolutionary thought. The insistence that slavery and colonialism, revolution and sovereignty be meticulously documented by Haitians and therefore discussed and not silenced stretches back to the earliest days of independence. Tell us some more about how uh, ancestors kept receipts meticulously. So if you look in the back of the earliest um, Haitian texts, which uh, post-independence texts, we'll get into the pre-independence ones in a minute, but let's go to Boiron Tonnerre's Memoir pour survivre à l'histoire d'Haïti and Duchamp Lads. Um, he has this kind of short pamphlet called À mes concitoyens before, uh, these, both of those are from 1804, so before uh, Shamlat's kind of major works, this very short seven-page pamphlet he writes. And um, they are using their memories as evidence, and in the case of Boisland-Tonnerre, they, um, he, uh, you know, includes letters. So there's some letters from Pauline Leclerc, um, there's some letters from French soldiers and officials, and this is supposed to support the narrative. This is supposed to show we have kept this documentation you aren't going to get away with peddling the story that, you know, we're the aggressors. And they're really following along um, some advice that they're getting as well. The foreign newspapers are saying, Haitians, you need to tell your story because the French are going around crying about how much you decimated their forces uh, in Saint-Domingue and you need to reframe the narrative. And so that's exactly what Dessalines does when... Um, he found the Gazette uh, Politique et Commerciale, which predates the, the Gazette uh, de l'État d'Haïti that Christophe will later uh, found in 1807. And in this kind of these first issues is let's go back over the Leclerc expedition and let's talk about what really happened. Um, in his April 28th famous proclamation and a speech and proclamation, um, Dessalines also says, let's not forget that it's not just Saint-Domingue or Haiti. It is also let's talk about Martinique. Let's talk about Guadeloupe. So he really shows that he has this keen historical understanding and awareness, and that as much as the French want to try to cover up and make it uh, not seem like a big deal that they become the first state anywhere in the world to reestablish slavery after abolishing it, they want to, you know, it's colonial indifference, like, oh, it's not a big deal. Um, they want to show the world that it is a huge deal. And they say things. Vate says this over and over again. Shanlat says this. Like, if one day we have mo we have monuments, if one day our works reach you across the seas, which of course they did, then the world will know and posterity will know. And Desalim even says, you know, you can try to tarnish my name as much as you want, but I'm going to do uh, what is right. And one day this will be recognized. And it's interesting to me to think about that we are at the moment where 
If we listen to Desalines' words, he says, I promise you, if you let the colonizers back on this land, I promise you they will do untold destruction. And this very profound thing he says um, in that April 28th speech, he says, if my, if those who come after me allow them to come back, you know, he's basically going to be trembling in his grave and it will be the Haitian people who suffer. And that's what we see, that when not just foreigners, because they make a very big distinction. It's colonists. And so we can take that perspective in many different directions about the various forms of colonists who have been in Haiti since post-independence era um, and the very different forms of colonialism that Haiti has seen since that era. But he said, that will be the time when you see that the protections I'm trying to put in place are so that we can live peacefully without slavery and without serving a master. And um, in the epilogue, I discuss this kind of very poignant passage from the Gazette Royale, um, which is the the newspaper that Christophe founds um, after he becomes named king by his uh, counselors of state uh, in 1811. And um, so in a later issue of the paper, he says, you know, there's really only two political parties in Haiti, despite what people might think. There's the ones who are the partisans of the French. And he says, some of those people are Haitians. And there's those who are not. And the partisans of the French want to return us to slavery. And those of us who do not want to remain free and sovereign and completely independent. And when we think about things in those terms, wow, it just opens up a whole world of thought. I think about Michel Dukoff talking about the relationship between French and Haitian Creole and linguistic apartheid and all of this, that it's not done. Haiti moved more into the sphere of control and domination from the United States, but that didn't mean that um, that the influence and domination and control of the French went away, which Christophe articulates very clearly early on by saying, as long as we speak French, we'll be dominated because your, your language you know, has something uh, to do with your mind, the way you think and habits of mind, and their language reflects their values and their worldview. And so we have to shift. And, you know, he wasn't at the moment where he could say Haitian Creole because that was just not in their consciousness uh, in the kingdom at that time. So he thought English would be the way. And we clearly see that that didn't happen. And now the sphere has shifted a little bit more towards recognizing the imperative um, for Haitian Creole to be the first language recognized, first language schooling of all Haitians, the language of governance that it must be in order to actually include the people in their own sovereignty, the Haitian people more broadly, not just elites or politicians, those the establishment in Haiti, that in order for there to be true popular sovereignty, Haitian Creole has to take its rightful place as the first language of the Haitian people. You said this, 18th and 19th century Haitians were remarkable record keepers. So much would be lost to us today if not for the painstaking efforts of Saint-Domingue slash Haiti's earliest writers who were determined to archive and otherwise preserve written evidence of slavery, colonialism, and revolution in Saint-Domingue. The colonists were covering the earth in shrieking testimonials about the Haitian Revolution which they usually referred to as an quote-unquote insurrection. Why is the word insurrection 
problematic for you. I even catch myself uh, using it sometimes uh, when referring to the Haitian Revolution. Can you expand on that for us, please? You know, it's funny you should ask that because I have also used, I caught myself saying it before. And it has to do with the sort of forms of silencing that made it seem like um, the Haitian Revolution was not as big of a deal or an even bigger deal, which of course is my argument in Awakening the Ashes, than the American Revolution and the French Revolution. Because if you want to talk about a restructuring of society, the only one of those revolutions that did that was the Haitian Revolution. Because the American Revolution just swapped out one form of elites for another form of elites. Sure, it changed in name for, you know, you're no longer a kingdom. Now the United States is is a republic. But white men, a white male oligarchy, for lack of a better term, remained in place, white male elites. It didn't formally and um, or or rather materially restructure society. Um, The French Revolution, France bounces back and forth between monarchy and republic and, and then empire. And um, so it doesn't fundamentally change the structure of society either. It sort of led to more fracturings of those societies. And if you think about the significant transformation that Haitian authors themselves point out happened after the Haitian Revolution in terms of labor, because, of course, France keeps right on enslaving, especially as soon as Napoleon comes right back <laughs> into power, and not for a little while, for 46 years they reinstate slavery in Guadeloupe and other territories in 1802, and it's not abolished until 1848. The United States can't achieve unilateral emancipation until 1865. So the fundamental structures of who gets to be rich, who gets to be in power, do not change in either of those societies, with it overwhelmingly the structures of power tilting towards white men. Think about in Haiti. One day, white men are in charge, and metaphorically speaking, the next day, Black men are in charge. They have completely reversed the power structure of this society and have said that white people can live in this society, but they cannot live in this society under the power structures of whiteness. And so in the chapter where I discuss um, Desalines' quote-unquote property exclusion, infamous property exclusion, I talk about how it's, you know, sort of not correctly reading the situation to say he's banning whites or banning property, white property owners. He's saying you can be here and be white, but you have to understand that this is an egalitarian society. And since the word white carries connotations of domination, we're going to go with the word black. So all Haitians are going to be recognized as black, which is, of course, as I've discussed before, commensurate with in Haitian Creole, the word neg meaning man. Um, And, and the, the desire to read that Article 14 too literally in Desalines' constitution is just a kind of slate of hand on the part of the French colonists to say, oh, you know, who's being racist now? Um, and so the word insurrection, as they used it, was actually uh, in the era in the 18th century, was to take away from, to make it to make it's back to that colonial indifference um, that this is something that causes fear and alarm and, and unrest, but is not going to fundamentally be a big deal. And so interesting that the French continue to carry that perspective forward into the 19th century when they're trying so hard to get back this place. Saint-Domingue, as they continue to call it, that was lost to them. They recognize at every turn what a huge deal this is, what a huge blow it is. But there's some type of cognitive dissonance there for them because to recognize what a huge deal with 
that the Haitian Revolution was would be to recognize the massive loss that they suffered there and the massive, um, you know, Vate says one point about a colonist named Mazer that he calls us overgrown, simple-minded, ignorant children, but doesn't realize like these these people that you're calling, using all these epithets to describe, they beat you in battle. So what does that mean about you? What are you then? If these are the people who beat you. Um, and so there's so much of downplaying the seriousness and the longitudinal consequences of the revolution, even as every action of the French shows that they recognize very much this is a revolution of the highest order. And they want to retrograde and go back to the age of slavery, um, even though they view themselves as kind of the, having opened the, one of the doors to the age of revolutions. What's the 1804 principle? Um, I talked about how the 1804 principle um, is an opening, an invitation. I call it the rest of the world to, for the rest of the world to join humanity because slavery and colonialism are incompatible with humanity. Um, this, the enslavers and the colonists are inhumane, therefore, words we find in the Declaration of Independence, uh, Haiti's Declaration of Independence, that is, um, the April 28th proclamation from Dessalines uh, in the works of Chamlat, Boisantonaire, Baron de Vaté, um, that slavery and colonialism, and then the Haitian state is going to add in in 1805 racism, really, um, that these are incompatible ideas, um, philosophies, because one of the sort of unrecognized um, parts of the Enlightenment and Enlightenment thought, European Enlightenment, is that it authorizes, legalizes um, slavery to a certain extent by refusing to pronounce upon, uh, in the 1789 Declaration of the Rights of Man, for example, who uh, is considered a man, by refusing to clearly state that, yes, Black people, Black Africans, Africans in general, other people from the rest of the world, including the Native Americans, indigenous populations of the Americas, are quote-unquote men. And whereas uh, French writers like Olympe de Gouges were able to clearly see, okay, the 1789 Declaration of the Rights of Men excludes women, and so she writes the Declaration of the Rights of Woman, um, there, there's still this kind of um, way in which there's a refusal to see, there's a negation, because it's not just an inability, it's a choice not to include that language, not to do anything to interrupt this very profitable regime of slavery and its corresponding colonialism that sort of allows it to flourish. And uh, when the Haitians come to power in Saint-Domingue, they say, we're going to build our country on the principle that no form of slavery can be legalized by any government, and we're not going to try to enlarge our territory outside of the bounds of the island, because I talk very um, sort of in detail about Haitians see the schism between the eastern and western parts of the island as unnatural, and so there is a desire to want to unify the entire bounds of the island, but to export the revolution beyond that, nope or to uh, expand Haitian territory beyond the limits of Haiti, which the Spanish renamed Hispaniola, La Española. No, there's not a will to want to do that. And so um, the 1804 principle as an invitation invites the rest of the world to come along and join the age of abolition, 
um, started by the Haitian Revolution, or to stay in the age of slavery, to retrograde and to stay in an inhumane position vis-a-vis the rest of the world. You, you, you have two words, acts, which is deeds, A-C-T-S, the uh, English word, and then you have ac, A-C-T-E-S, the French word meaning discourse. You said that you had to reconfigure or rethink your definition of the intellectual history of Haiti because acts and ac became the, the the two sides of the same intellectual coin for you. Can you can you expand on that for us, please? Tell t- tell me more about that. So when it sort of hit my brain that acts, you know, the the actions that people take, the English word acts and act, as you mentioned, the French word for kind of a discourse or a declaration of some sort. We have uh, the Haitian Declaration of Independence is actually l'acte d'indépendance. Um, that it struck me that the tensions um, that Michel Wolf-Trouillot was pointing out and that, that I see in, you know, Haitian revolutionary historiography with paying attention to kind of proclamations and deeds that, that declare things like the end of slavery and then, and, or the ones that want to fold back and say, well, let's look at slave revolts and rebellions more broadly. Let's look at Marilyn Nash. Let's look at other acts of resistance as kind of laying the groundwork or themselves being what comes first and then the act uh, in French, <laughs> the dis- the declarations, the proclamations, the discourses, that those come later. So when, it, when I started to see the relationship between these two kind of words that are faux amis, false friends, because they don't really mean the same thing, um, they look like they would, but they don't translate to each other in these separate languages, English and French. And so when I started to see this less as a tension and as some thing that we must understand together and not necessarily so that uh, we better understand the acts that led to what we call the Haitian Revolution and Haitian independence. Um, I That is also very important to me that we consider that, but also on the intellectual side, that it's not a separate process from the writing, the scribal techniques that give us act. Um, and once we begin to see them together, we can see they're not at odds that people who are acting are acting in an intellectual manner. They're showing you their discourse. They're showing you their proclamation. And so probably the greatest example from the book is, is in chapter one with the Aitians, uh, the Aitians, the first Haitians, as Haitians call them. They don't call them Tainos and Arawaks for reasons I explain in the in that first chapter there. Um that those terms came later and those are, you know, European invented terms um, that we can say, well, we don't have any writing from, you know, this population. Um, So we don't know what they were thinking. Um, And yet they showed us the Castique Henri, uh, Enriquillo, as a Spanish called him, um, showed us very clearly what he was thinking when he ran away to the mountains of Bajoruco, um, what is now the Dominican Republic, and created a maroon state for more than 10 years. Um, and that was a very, very clear act um, in both senses of that word to me. And the Christmas time rebellion in 1521 is another one. Um, those enslaved Africans from Diego Colon's plantation who rebelled were very clearly 
showing us and telling us what was on their mind, which was freedom. What was their philosophy of freedom, which is getting away from these enslavers and making the life for ourselves in the mountains um, and resisting this captivity that we've that has been forced upon us by the Spanish enslavers. What did you mean by the Haitian story is both local and global? So this sort of goes back to uh, something I was I discussed in an earlier, uh, as a response to an earlier question, which was, you know, when I was trying to write my dissertation on Haitian intellectual history, kind of very broadly, not just necessarily the intellectual history of the revolution, and the idea that this was like some type of niche or very local history, and that to really speak uh, in a broader ways to academic audiences, um, the market forces, job market, um, getting a job that I have to show that, you know, I understand uh, a sort of larger set of principles that can be derived from this. And the best way to do that is to do comparative studies, right? And to put the Haitian writers in conversation with European and U.S. writers in particular. And um, I, again, I don't actually think that was a wrong move in the sense of um, it just opened my eyes to many things. I became extremely conversant in French literature and history and U.S. American literature and history of the 19th century and particularly African-American studies, which many chapters in my first book deal with 19th century African-American literature, thought, intellectual history, print culture. And so that really, I was able to see what was distinct and specific about Haitian literature, print culture, uh, philosophy, intellectual history of the 19th century, what was in what was a conversation that they were having with other intellectuals, what were critiques that they were having, and I was really able to understand all of that. And um, in in this book, I wanted to show that actually I, the comparativity is kind of baked in, but you have to buy into the idea that um, this history is important for the world, not just for Haiti and Haitians. And once you sort of can see that we can't get to the age of abolition um, in the way that we got to it without Haiti. Now, I'm not saying we wouldn't have gotten there eventually, but who knows how long it would take because Haiti opens the door to the age of abolition. And as I explained, Great Britain's not going to walk through that door until 1833-1834. France is not going to do it until 1848. The United States really, okay, Emancipation Proclamation earlier, but unilateral emancipation in 1865. The Netherlands, they declare, but it's not implemented until much later. Puerto Rico, Cuba, Brazil, so late. Um, we have the examples of Grand Colombia, Mexico a bit earlier, but still we're talking decades, not years, not not a few years, I mean, not a few months, not a few hours, decades later, it takes for the rest of the world to catch up. And that's not the ineffectiveness of the Haitian revolution. That's the stubborn, violent determination of the slaving powers to continue to enslave when they had an example of 
free labor, quote unquote, that's what they call it. Uh, Haiti had the most free labor system in the world in the early 19th century. You know, all of these intellectuals from around the world who were interested in this question or remarking upon uh, the Code Henri and and other elements of society in, on, on Petion's side, for example. And it's not labor, again, that we would consider extremely progressive today by any stretch of the imagination, but compared to chattel slavery. So the, the European onlookers are comparing it to the systems of labor that they have, which are the most unfree labor systems in the world, right? Um, and so that's really, once you see that, okay, you have to look at this Haitian law, uh, and you have to start with Toussaint's uh, law banning slavery, and you have to see that there's three precisions made so that no uh, kind of uh, misunderstanding could happen. You know, he uses the word servitude there, forever abolished. He says free in French in that um, in that article of the 1801 Constitution, at that this is not something that just affects Saint-Domingue, that we can go to the U.S. newspapers and see how they were reporting on it to show that they were like, wow, this is an actually amazing thing that is happening in the world right now. Jump to the 1805 Imperial Constitution under Dessalines, that is reiterated, and then it's reiterated under Pétion for the Republic. It's reiterated under Christophe for the state he builds. It's going to be constantly reiterated, and each of those iterations is like a little bomb and a dart sent to the rest of the world, showing and exposing their inhumanity. Because why can't you abolish slavery? The Haitians did it. Look at this massive kingdom. Look at this opulence. Look at these schools he's building, which is what I talk about in chapter eight. Um, so each of those is like a, a little bomb um, and a little expose, another point of embarrassment for the rest of the world. And it takes them, again, a while to get there for the laws to come and to catch up to Haiti. But that doesn't mean that what the Haitians did was not the most sort of radical um, event uh, of the era, the Haitian Revolution, I mean. Oh, Ha <laughs> ha 